Welcome to Behavioral Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Behavioral Grooves focuses on the applications of behavioral science, and we share conversations with researchers who are testing cool theories, practitioners who have great observations and outstanding applications, and accidental behavioral scientists who pull all the best thinking into place, but just without the behavioral science terminology. And we do it while having a lot of fun. Yes, we do. Well, I hope so. <laughs> At least today. Yeah. And we're glad to say that we've been able to record conversations with some of the Hall of Famers of behavioral science. And we're going to rattle off a few for you. All right. Like Robert Cialdini, episode 50, John Barge, episode 155, and Gary Latham, episode 147. Whoa, whoa, that's, and that's not it. That's not it. We have Christina Bacchieri, episodes 102 and 133, not just one, but two. Wendy Wood, episode 128, Rory Sutherland, episode 107, and Annie Duke. Oh my gosh, Annie Duke, you know, episode 31, 88, 100, and 125. I think we like Annie. I think we like Annie. Oh, we also have Barry Ritholtz, episodes 47 and 121, and the very wonderful but hard to get on a podcast, George Lowenstein, episode 67. Yeah, that was a coup. Holy smokes. And we've had tons of fantastic researchers and practitioners that aren't household names that we've shared some fantastic ideas on marketing like Will Leach and Jonathan Mann or James Brewer uh, or the brilliant folks that we've talked to about their insights on improving sales incentives with ideas from Mike Ahern and Tom Steenberg and Paul Hebert. And we've also had great conversations with how to improve employee engagement with people like Chris Dobbins and Brad Shuck. Yeah. What we're trying to say is all of this is one thing. If you're new to Behavior Grooves, check out some of our past episodes because they just might surprise you. And you can do that at www.behavioralgrooves.com. And at the same time, you might want to check out our Patreon site at www.patreon forward slash behavioralgrooves.com to lay down some super subscription mojo of your own. Subscription mojo? Yeah, that's like something that more and more people are getting into every single day, man. They're doing their subscription mojo. Okay, subscription mojo it is. <laughs> All right, well, let's get on to our guest for this episode. Okay, good call, Kurt. In this episode, we're going to hear from Steve Wendell, the head of behavioral science at Morningstar Funds. Steve recently released a second edition of his book called Designing for Behavior Change, and we think it's a terrific framework for behavior change initiatives. While the book focuses on practical application, it's built on a rigorous foundation of solid research. Steve shared some of his insights from his book as well. Yeah, he did, Kurt. And we talked to him about the DECIDE framework and what makes behavioral science different from the traditional approaches taken by psychology, economics, sociology, and neuroscience. It was a really great discussion. That was good. And we discussed where behavioral science fits in the corporate world in ethical ways. You'll find Tim and I scratching our heads in awe almost as much as we were laughing. So with that, sit back, relax, and enjoy a fine glass of a decision-making cocktail as you listen to our conversation with Steve Wendell. Steve Wendell, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thanks for having me, guys. We are you, glad to have you here. It is going to be fun. Very, very fun. So let's get started with the speed round. Steve, which would you prefer, dinner with your favorite musician or a favorite sports player? 
Oh, favorite musician. <laughs> Good answer. All right, Tim. Tim is uh, grooving on that one. All right. So coffee or tea? I, I didn't realize there was a thing called coffee. Oh. <laughs> tea, of course. Oh, nice. Nice. Okay. There we okay. go. Monet or Michelangelo? Ooh, okay. That one's a little harder. I think I'm going Michelangelo. Great. Great. Okay. All right. First edition of a book or second edition of a book? Which is easier? Oh, second edition. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. Well, let's, 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 okay. So let's, let's go on that for a little bit. You are writing the second edition of, of this book that's going on. Tell us a little bit about that. What, what is this? Why on a second edition and, and what's going on? What's changed from the first edition that you needed to go and do a second edition? Yeah, so the short version is just about bloody everything. I mean, <laughs> the field has changed so radically. So the first edition of Designing for Behavior Change was, initially it was really a manual for my team at mm. Hello Wallet, right? It was, okay, here's how we can take this literature on behavioral science, on how the mind works, and apply it to product development, right? And beyond what we were doing, and really just trying out, there just weren't many other companies, Right? The field has changed radically. Now we actually have a field. And we've learned so much about that process. And we've really settled on, as, as I've talked to dozens of other companies and, and teams, we've settled on a common approach to doing designing for behavior change. And so that's what the book is about. It's about how the mind works, how you apply that in, in product and, and communications in order to help people change behavior. And then we also talk about, um, well, what's going on in the field? So let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the these changes, right? Because mm -hmm. if there have been so many changes in these years, what are what do you think are the most salient changes that you you saw as you went back to write, write the second edition? Yeah, I mean, I really think about it as diversity. So um, the uh, wrote the first edition seven years ago, um, and it came out just just under that. Um, at that time, there were applications of behavioral science outside of the universities in um, finance, and starting in healthcare. Mm -hmm. And it was all basically the UK and the US. Now, there, were, there was a smattering otherwise, but that was really the, the heavy concentration. Um, and it was primarily seeded by um, academic researchers. All of that has changed. We see the diversity of application, right? We see just the, the, the establishment in marketing, product design, HR, uh, and international development and policy. Those are the, the, the big areas. Um, we see it across companies. So it's not just finance and healthcare now, right? You see it in, of course, energy sector. Opower was one of the um, mm -hmm. uh, was one of the pioneers there. Now it's all over, right? You see it in um, hygiene behavior. You see a, 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 lots of new work about COVID and behavioral science, which, of course, I know you guys have featured some of on behavioral groups. Well done. Um, so that's that's kind of the, in, in, in the application areas. When we look geographically, right, the U.S. and the U.K. don't even have the majority anymore. It's Netherlands. It's South Africa. It's, I mean, there's, there's a group in Armenia. There's a big group. There's a big set of companies and um, policy groups as well in Peru, in um, I spoke to a lawyer who's starting the first group in Paraguay. Um, I mean, it's all over the world now, and it's awesome, and it's no longer just English speaking. 
you mentioned HR. So yep. how do you see how do you see behavioral science being applied in HR? Because again, I uh, in the work that we've done, both Tim and I, we we tend to work internally within organizations, and so we're seeing that. But you know, part of our big push on this that has been this idea that we're just trying to you know battle against the the headwinds because. Well, yeah, marketing gets uses this stuff because that's with the consumer and they can run all these tests and do different yeah, things. Right. But then applying these principles internally inside of an organization, what are you talking about? You know, so <laughs> sure. how have you seen it being applied within HR? Sure. So um, first of all, I would say uh, the, the the Penn Wharton group that, that Katie Milkman set up is a great mm. place to – they actually know what they're talking about. Let me give you my summary of what I believe other people know what they're talking about. So when I look across HR and the folks I've, I've spoken to, I see three different main areas of application right now. Right? Okay. Um, one is employee engagement and employee behavior, okay, which is – that's your – that's, well, to me, stereotypical um, – Google changing the layout of the cafeteria so that people will um, uh, spend a little bit more time thinking of what they want to eat, right, for example, and perhaps make it easier to get the water rather than the soda, okay? And that's the People Analytics Group, um, uh, Jessica Wisdom, other folks uh, there at Google, right? Um, that's one area. The second area is, um, is diversity and inclusion. There's been some really great work, um, and, I, and, and the books that I recommend there and, and the writing I recommend is um, Iris Bonet out of Harvard has a book called What Works, and it's a summary of this, uh, this broad literature, some of which she's done, some of which other people have done, um, in looking at the hiring practices, right, how we, structure the, uh, how we structure hiring so that we're not, well, getting people like me, right? <laughs> Or, no. or or me or Tim, yeah, 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 yeah you know, but uh, you know, <laughs> exactly. Class, Enough said. White guys yeah. shouldn't be the shouldn't uh, you know aren't representative of the overall population, yeah. and so how do we how do we not discriminate against folks like us, but rather how do we just make a system that's more fair? And there's just wonderful work in that area. Of course, the um, uh, the the BIT in the UK has done work in this area, and they spun off the company Applied to help with this. But there's much broader literature that um, Iris Bonet talks about. And then the the, the um, there's also some work actually, I think it's out of Germany if I remember correctly, um, on inclusion nudges, which is more broadly looking at um, changing the everyday work environment to help inclusion. Most of the work we've seen is in diversity, so in, in increasing the pool. Inclusion is really about welcoming people who are already there. Um, and then the final area um, is kind of a, is, is organizational change. And this one I know much less about, but I'm starting to see there, there's, of course, a longstanding literature and, um, and, and tradition in organizational psychology. And I'm starting to see some more crossover of experimental organizational psychology, stuff like that. Um, that's, that's, that's much more behavioral science-y. What what makes it more behavioral sciencey? Because uh, I, I think that this is interesting. Like we we think about um, behavioral science as being a relatively new thing. You, you've been talked about it as we now have a field that we talk about behavioral <laughs> yes. science, right? And yet, psychology has been around. Economics has been around. Neuroscience has been around. Uh, psychology has a you know exactly. hundred year plus history. Uh, but but there is a change, right? There's something different between Sigmund Freud and uh, and and what we consider behavioral science today. 
Well, and thanks for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, I just want to find my id. All right. That's really all I'm I'm in for. So yeah. <laughs> it's under the couch. <laughs> but but Steve, what what do, what do you think uh, differentiates sort of traditional psychological approaches or something like or, organizational psychology from sure. what we consider behavioral science today? Sure. I, the way that I define behavioral science, the way that I teach it, is, is, is my own, with an understanding that there is a diversity of opinion in the field, right? Um, but the way that I look at it is really three things. First, it is a specific understanding of the mind and of the shortcuts that the mind takes, okay? So it's a particular literature that came out of cognitive psychology mixed with um, uh, mixed with uh, economics, right? That mm-hmm. then blossomed and grew and included more of social psychology, but not necessarily all of it, right? It's a particular understanding of the imperfection of the human mind and how we take, whether you call them smart or foolish, either way, shortcuts, right? So it's either Gingrens or smart shortcuts or uh, a more um, uh, Kahneman, foolish shortcuts, but either way, a set of shortcuts that help us overcome some of our limitations, but they themselves are incomplete. Right? So that's one. It's an understanding of the mind. Second, it's a set of tools experimentally tested in the field to help overcome these obstacles. Right? Now, most people, when they think of behavioral science, when they read nudge, when they, when they read predictably rational, etc., they get this bag of tricks approach. They think of it just as that second area, which is, oh, here's this thing. Oh, I could use loss aversion. And that's an important part of behavioral science. But I think, honestly, it's the least important part, right? The third area, the part that I think is most important, is a structural belief in experimentation. And I know this is going to be controversial, folks. I know that. But I think about it as it's not experimentation for its own sake. It's a building into the process and building into our research and understanding that we're probably wrong. I call it an epistemic humility. Mm-hmm. That we, we fundamentally believe at the core of our research that human beings are really complex and that contexts matter and that it's a really even dangerous thing to say, I've got the answer on how to change behavior. We've and, seen yeah. – yeah, I, I, I want to dig into that a little bit because I think we've seen – uh, people who have who have talked about that, right? Who have brought in this idea that we need to experiment. Uh, we were talking. Uh, Tim, help me with the name from Uber. Uh, 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 Candace. Candace. Um, yeah. Um, Candace Owen. Ho- no. Candace no, no, Hogan. Candace Hogan, Hogan. Thank you. I think. Um, she, I think but, she may have gotten married and changed her name. Yeah, I, yes, I yes. think that might have yes. been been true. And one of the things that she was talking about was, you know, the idea of using those experiments and where behavioral science came in. She said, look, our decision sciences group have been doing experiments since day one here. We have done A-B tests. Marketing does it all of the time. So you think about experimentation, that in and of itself isn't enough. Where she was seeing some of this and where I believe, too, that behavioral science plays a role is – you, you do an A-B test and you say, well, A works better than B or B works better than, than C, but you don't necessarily understand the mechanics behind why A works better than B or why B works better than C, where behavioral science helps getting some of that insight. And so then you can 
ex you can create better experiments next time and keep Im improving upon those. Is, is that uh, a fair assessment? Yeah. yeah, that's the combination of the first area, which is this particular understanding of the mind and really a theory. Hmm. theory about how the mind works and where we expect these challenges to arise with the experimental ver verification. And to be clear, people have been running experiments for a very long time, right? And experimental economics is a wonderful and thoughtful field. We've had an understanding of the mind, and we have different theories, of course, dating back centuries. It's, again, this particular literature on shortcuts, on how these go awry, on our mind's limitations, on bounded rationality, right? That bundle combined with experiments, combined with the history of really the, the, the bag of tricks is our record of prior experiments. Yeah. Right? Those three things together, to me, make behavioral science. And when, when someone goes out, and there are lots of groups that do consulting and apply behavioral science and apply these lessons, I think it's a very valuable thing to do. And I, I, I personally, I use a different term for that. I call that behavioral consulting, or I call that behavioral design. Um, the science part is you're you're checking whether you're right and in most cases you'll find you're not yeah well even within organizations even if you are doing behavioral consulting or behavioral design one of the things that we see is that context is so important in this that what we we can have these generalized uh beliefs or ideas or even these bag of tricks as you said that apply and they work great in most instances but hey this instance, it doesn't work. And we've talked with uh, Michael Hallsworth about some, you know, you know, again, some of the best insights that he's gotten are from these experiments that he thought for sure were going to be great, and they failed. And this idea of always making sure that you're testing, always making sure that you are experimenting, because the context is so important in this. And so even if you're doing behavioral design, you may be applying some of these scientific aspects, but you better be testing it out as well. Because yeah. uh, you know what, company A may look a lot like company B, but there are some small differences, and those small differences can make big changes. Exactly. So. And I'm not, I'm not a purist that says it always has to be a capital E experiment. <laughs> okay. rather, um, we should assume that something's going to go wrong. We should assume that people are different in context is different in subtle ways, and we should always be testing. Yeah. So uh, I'm wondering what, uh, given this epistemic um, humility, I love that term, thinking about that, how do you think about the replication crisis? Or let's, I'm, you know, using this yeah. massively generalized term here, but but what do you think about replication in general when it comes to the capital E experiments? Sure. So um, I think the replication crisis is the exposing of the of two different things. One is some actual real shoddy work. Yeah. Okay. And then the second is it's a grappling with this with the differences of context and the complexities of human behavior. And I think at times we've reached for universals where there aren't any. And we should always assume that our interventions are context-dependent. That's what behavioral science is. We're studying the context. We're studying how it affects things. And so we shouldn't be surprised when the context matters. But we are. Why are we? Why is that a surprise? We... I don't know if I can even answer that question without resorting to a universal. <laughs> because we all like universals. See, there, I just used one. Yeah. It's, 
it's it's natural to look for a general structure. And I think instead, the, the phrase that I use with my team is, I want to know the structure of applicability. Mm. I want to know the circumstances under which we believe this works. Uh, if, if somebody says we have the answer always, I'm like, nope, nope, I don't think you have it anywhere then. Yeah. <laughs> because it's just, God, this stuff is hard. It is. It, it it is hard. So and here we're laughing. Yeah, we're laughing. Oh, it's it's hard like to fun. Get my page. Yes, I appreciate. It's fun it. hard, right? Yeah, there you go. Yeah. No, it is. It is a fun. It's a fascinating. It is an awesome hard. It's just you know, it's just how it is. Yeah. I mean, well, complex. People are complex, and that's what's the fascinating part. If they were simple, they were robots. This would be. It, it, I wouldn't be excited about this at all. I'd be like, well, yeah, you just program them, and they do X. You know, you plug and play, and boom. That's not how. That's not how we work. So you, you could have been a coder, though, Kurt. I just think you could have gone into development and just oh created computers. God, I would have exactly the, what what you wanted every time. I, right? I <laughs> I would be horrible, horrible. No, 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 no. For the record, I have to say there are actually a lot of similarities between software engineering. And thoughtful behavioral science. I used to be a software engineer, and maybe I'm the only person who sees those parallels, right? So, uh, the early one of the early compilers in Unix, um, when it compiled your code and checked for errors, if it didn't find any, it would say none of your bugs were found. <laughs> and the beauty is, right? It's saying that look, everybody's code is wrong. Yeah. Just as with everybody's behavioral interventions are wrong. The question is, are you? How many of the errors are you finding? How quickly are you finding them, right? Are you building a process that allows you to become a little bit less wrong? We talked to Gary Latham recently, and he was just ranting on uh, on this idea of using inductive reasoning, you know, to start with. Just, just don't start with a theory. Don't start with, I know that this is what I'm going out to prove. Start with, I don't know what I'm going to prove. I've got an idea. I want to test it. And and I think that that fits perfectly with this um, with this idea of uh, epistemic humility to say I'm not really sure if there's a theory here at all. We're just going to find out what what happens. Well, you have to have. He's, he's saying you have a hypothesis. You have yes. you have oh, some idea, sure. but but this idea of let's just gather a bunch of of data and then let's make sure that that data shows because the the idea and one of the things that he brought up is this idea of well if we just find enough information to prove our theory then we typically stop and he said so that it's just like you it's like we just haven't found the bugs we've we've only experimented <laughs> enough to say this works as opposed to keep going and finding more bugs i exactly. i love that analogy though of finding bugs because i think it's so true so no i think i think that makes a lot of sense yeah so i want to ask given this idea that we tend to want to generalize and yet within behavioral science we understand that that probably isn't the best way of of doing things and that we're context dependent and we're complex creatures. The idea of marrying uh, machine learning AI in with behavioral science, where you are getting very specific interventions because of the power of computers and the software that we have today and being able to apply a particular behavioral science intervention to Tim uh, that is going to be different than it is to me versus different to, you know, Joe Schmo down, down the street. Where do you see that leading? Uh, and what are your thoughts on that? I think it's awesome. So I think there are um, a variety of ways that we can combine data science and AI with uh, behavioral science. And I think one of them is this, is this personalization. And to be frank, it, it, 
our research in behavioral science hasn't done a great job there because we've been looking for these universals. And instead, we should look at the particulars. Mm-hmm. Who can we serve? Under what circumstances? And who are we hurting? Because if we haven't found where it backfires, then it just means we haven't found it. <laughs> it's still there. <laughs> There's somebody for whom this doesn't work. And so how do we get past the averages? How do we get past the, 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 the point effect and say, okay, what a, for whom is this the right intervention? For whom might there be a better intervention? And one of the ways that you can combine that is by, um, and, and this is where behavioral science has gone, is by a mediator or moderator analysis. Look mm-hmm. at the intervening variables, right? But those, those are our initial sets of tools. We can bring in much bigger guns, shall we say, from machine learning to say, okay, let's better understand the structure of this impact and the causes of treatment responsiveness, right, of where this treatment is effective and where people respond to it. And then let's model accordingly. That's one approach, right? Another approach is uh, just let people self-select. So, and this is, this is the low-tech version where you take your best shot based on their data and say, hey... I think you should do this, but yeah, maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> you can try too. Oh and my then, god! And then actually, the approach—I'm uh, not smart enough to take the, the to use the big guns. So I've, I've I've used that low tech approach in the past. And to what end? I'm I'm curious because I think about there's all kinds of, with all of the biases that we have for whatever circumstance that this is occurring in. How uh, successful is self selection in? Again, in general, here we are back to the universals. <laughs> we can't avoid them. We, we, we're human. Um, so it really depends on what type of self-selection, right? So let me give you a, a, a concrete example. Um, I, I've done a, done a fair bit of work on personal finance and helping people budget and save for the future, right? And if you say, okay, we're going to just tell people they should save. And those who really need to save, well, they'll go save. And those who won't, won't. No, that's that's a that's a that's a type of self-selection that's just ignorant of the limitations of the mind, right? But an approach we tried, and I think it's better, right? And the data showed us it seemed better, is to say, look, people, lots of people have problems. We all have problems. Okay, looking at your data, Tim. Looking at your data, Kurt. It looks like in your case, Kurt, you're struggling with. Um, Let's say it's credit card debt, right? And Tim, you're struggling with, sorry, man. Uh, and, and Tim, you're struggling with um, emergency savings. It looks like you've got, you, you've paid off the debts, but you're struggling in this area. And here's some techniques that can help with emergency savings for you and credit card for you. And so then it's much more about not do people see the need, but rather have you correctly identified the problem and then you are supplying the solutions, mm. Right? The challenge is people often can recognize they have a problem. And this, this occurs in so many aspects of, of, uh, of product design and design work overall, that people may recognize a problem, but they can't articulate or don't know what the right solution is. I know that I don't exercise enough. I know my problem. I need behavioral science to help me solve that. So part of that, it seems like it's, it's removing some friction. Part of that seems like framing the problem statement in a way that is actually drives some engagement or motivation or action out of out of things. Yeah. 
what else, uh, you know, when you think about the, the pieces that are actually going to get people to move, wh- how do you, how do we get people to, to, if we know that we have a problem, but mm-hmm. we're not doing anything about it, what are some of the ways that you guys are, you, you're talking about design, right? It's yeah. about designing products and services. That's obviously a big piece of this. How do you go about doing that? How do you get people to actually sure. change? Well, if I might make a big leap here, there's this book I wrote. <laughs> and it talks about how to do that. <laughs> so first, never saw that one coming. Whew, yeah. Wow. Laid out the softball for you. There, Laid but... out the softball. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So um, there are a set of preconditions for action. And I right. personally look at voluntary action. Okay. Right? I'm not looking at how to coerce people. I'm not looking how to even how to persuade them. Something where people, you know, if they thought about it, would see, yes, I have a problem. Okay? So, in those circumstances where there is actually value to the user, to taking an action, well, the first and biggest problem that most people face is attention. You might, as the product designer, as the, as the product manager, you might be thinking about this problem and how important it is and how people should really be solving it, like saving for the future, etc. They're playing with their kids or driving their car to work, maybe not right now, but whatever it might be, right? They're living their lives and your problem isn't top of mind, right? And so the first thing we need to think about is how, how, why would people actually think about this, right? And then once the mind has attention to a problem, it has generally an immediate reaction. That is your, your system one, your intuitive sense Is this right for me? Is this a good idea? Is this a bad idea? How do I feel about this emotionally? And it is blazingly fast, right? And it can lead us astray. So, for example, when I think about exercise often, uh, primarily because I don't do it enough, um, when I think about exercise, right, I think about, okay, yeah, I think I need to get in shape. It's healthy for me. I also think, man, I'm really skinny and very white. And I'm going to look really funny in my gym shorts. And I'm serious. That's been a, right? I'm just laying it out there, right? That's been a problem. Like I haven't wanted to go to the gym because I look funny. I'm a skinny white guy, right? And so even though the benefits are so clear, long-term and short-term, right? I feel better, et cetera. That emotional reaction matters. Now, what I'm giving is, is, is I'm walking step-by-step by frame, through a framework called CREATE. Q, reaction, evaluation, ability, timing, and experience. Because these, as you look across the broad literature in behavioral science, these are the major in-the-moment obstacles that people face. Not paying attention to it, having a strong emotional reaction that's, we would call irrational, but it's human, right? Um, the, 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 costs, at least in the moment, seem to outweigh the benefits, and particularly we'll look at temporal myopia, issues like that, right, present bias, Um, uh, ability, where you actually can't take the action, or you don't have a sense of self-efficacy. You don't believe you can, right? And this is Bandura's work, for example, building on that. Um, And then timing, that's our good old-fashioned friend, procrastination, right? Is it urgent now? Why, Why would I do it now? And many of the things that are good for us are yeah, just not all that urgent. <laughs> Saving for the future, exercise, spending more time with your family, all of those things you could do tomorrow, right? 
And then finally, um, the, the final E is experience, which is just a recognition that regardless of what, what it looks like on paper, whether something looks right for a person, whether it looks like they might be okay with it and it's urgent and all that stuff, if they were burned in the past, especially with your product, you've got a real problem. Mm. Because that prior experience is what colors. Well, it actually colors every step of it. Uh, it. It affects our attention through confirmation bias and the selective attention that we have. It affects that emotional reaction. It affects our sense of the cost and benefits, et cetera. And so that's the create framework, which is an understanding of what it takes to take action, conscious action. Now, when we're talking habits, it's um, the cue, the reaction, and the ability. So it's cra, which just doesn't sound as good, but it's true. Um, <laughs> And in the book, I also look at the reverse, what's required to stop an action that someone wants to stop. So to stop a negative habit, uh, so for example, smoking. Uh, the analyses now look like the major factor of smoking is actually it's a habit. It's not so much the chemical dependency, though the chemical dependency is obviously a real thing too, right? And we have tools to defeat habits by using create in reverse, blocking attention, so removing the cue, um, uh, bringing up strong negative associations, uh, uh, you know, et cetera. So yeah. replacing the routine, stuff like that. I, I have to admit uh, that was uh, that was kind of a shock uh, seeing that all these years of of all the medical work saying that people are addicted to smoking cigarettes because of nicotine and new research coming on saying, well, yeah, it's maybe it's just maybe it's just a habit. It's like. <laughs> Wow, that just, I felt like, I mean, it's good to learn new things every day. It's good to not be too adhered to our old beliefs, but that was kind of a shocker. Well, I mean, um, it's also part of our, of our improved understanding of habits. And I particularly look to Wendy Wood, yeah, who is simply astounding, right? And really the, the, the source from which most of the popular press books are drawing from, right? Absolutely. That nicotine can be extraordinarily important. And I, and I say this just one example, right? In general, a reward... Yeah, may be important, particularly important when you're repeating the behavior enough to make it a habit. But by definition, a habit is automatic. And so once you get that, once that habit is formed, the reward is no longer as relevant. And in some cases, you continue with even without it altogether. So it's not that nicotine or whatever the reward is wasn't important. It's just, it's not relevant for the stopping. Yeah. Oh, much, that's interesting. As we might think. And that's, yeah. of course, Wendy, who's helped with all of this, helped yeah. us all understand this. No, no kidding, man. We we had a wonderful conversation yeah. with her, and that was just super. She's always super illuminating. I want to go back to the corporate world for, yeah. for a minute. And and you brought up some of the, the challenges of applying behavioral science tools, techniques, uh, all those kinds of things in the corporate world. We were talking about, a little bit about HR, but there's many sure. areas. What do you think are some of the problems that – that, or some of the misuses or maybe not ideal uses of behavioral science that need to be fixed or could be done better? Sure, sure. So I think of it as um, process, right? Politics and ethics. Those, those are the three big challenges. The process one is the easiest to solve, right? That's how do you actually do this stuff and watch out for potential mistakes and how to, just how do you do this effectively? And that's what I, what I was alluding to in the beginning that at least as I've talked to other folks in the field 
and read their work as well. We've all kind of come down to the same basic blueprint of how to do this. It's a problem-solving approach. You can liken it to a double diamond in the design world. Um, it's an iterative approach where you're identifying an obstacle, looking f- using a particular intervention, testing that in the field, right? Um, after some discovery process. And I, I have the framework decide in the book for that, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, um, I can walk through it, uh, determining the... Uh, uh, determining the problem, what you want to solve, looking at the context, um, finding the particular behavioral obstacle people are facing, um, picking out the, uh, the intervention, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but frankly, there are a lot of other good frameworks out there, and underneath the hood, we're all basically doing the same thing. Um, I think the book does a good job of giving the practical tools on how to do that, how to do a behavioral map to look out the micro actions someone takes. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think it's a clear write-up of that process, but it's not unique, and I want to be clear on that. Um, that, that process part, again, we've got, a, we've got a model for it. The politics side is, um, well, okay, how do you talk about this? How do you, um, how do you show the value? How do you build your team um, uh, in a way that isn't threatening to other groups? And for me, I think, it's, um, I think it's important to recognize that nobody cares about behavioral science, and nobody mm-hmm. should. Instead, <laughs> other than us, okay, we care about it. We care about it deep, deep, deep down our hearts. But our business partners shouldn't. They shouldn't care. They should care about, are we actually helping our users? Are we building better product that is successful in the market, right? That is actually desirable and interesting. Um, does it actually deliver on the value proposition? Uh, is the marketing ethically connecting with our customers and resonating in a way that others didn't? Is our HR program increasing in engagement in a thoughtful way? That's what they should care about. Behavioral science is a means, right? It's a means that I love, that I've devoted most of my professional career to, but it's still a means, and I think that helps in that politics process, mm-hmm. right? Walk in and say, I, I try, to be clear, I certainly didn't do this at the beginning. I made tremendous number of mistakes. Now I just make new mistakes. But this <laughs> one, um, I try not to walk in and say, let me tell you what behavioral science can do for you. I instead say, what problem are you trying to, what problem are you facing that you can't currently solve? Okay, let me see if I can help. And if I can't, I'm like, ah, I don't have any idea. I think that's an interesting piece because we have gone in and I think many practitioners have gone in into C-suites trying to say, hey, behavioral science is this, you know, not magic silver bullet maybe, but you definitely need to understand this. You need to know this. And to your point, C-suites don't care. They don't care about the the means, as you say. They care about the end results and making sure that you're achieving the the outcomes and the strategies are are being you know fulfilled in a in a proper manner and and achieving whatever ROI things that they're they're looking for uh, exactly. along those lines. So that's a great insight. And I and I think about it as um, there is a real important difference between research and applied behavioral science. Both of them involve those three things, right? Both of them involve the body of work, the body of, of interventions, and the, and the, and the uh, iterative testing. But in research, we are trying to improve our understanding of the mind. We're trying to develop new theory and test that theory, right? Applied behavioral science is engineering. It's about accomplishing something. It's not about feeling special about ourselves and showing how we have this cool tool. Now, we may along the way 
gain a deeper understanding of the mind, and we should publish that. And my team does both our few successes and our many failures, right? <laughs> but that's not our goal. Our goal is to accomplish something. It's to accomplish helping people change their behavior where they struggle, doing something for them. That's terrific. I, I love that. I love thinking about it that way. And um, thank you for reducing my job to just basically building blocks. <laughs> <laughs> Tinker toys. <laughs> but no, but that, I think that that's, that's a great way to differentiate. Really, when we think about the researchers that we talk to, they are creating the building blocks in which that we can go out into the corporate world yes. and put to application, you know, to build applications with. Is that, that, that's a great way of thinking about and, it. And not to shortchange what we do, those building blocks themselves, they're not doing anything. Yeah. You need engineering as well as physics. Yeah. Right? You need each the have a role to play. Yeah. You need that engineer to be able to put the building blocks together in a way that is actually going to work because yeah. too many times you get somebody who reads predictably rational or even thinking fast and slow. And now they, they're going, oh, loss aversion. Let's apply a loss aversion to <laughs> this. And you're sitting there going, no, no, please don't, because you don't understand the, the, you know, the ramifications and the, the, the exactly. other aspects of this that are going to come into play. All right. So you, you talk about the, that, and I fully agree on the engineering uh, analogy. Ethics is this last piece. Yes. And this is a big piece with Tim and me. So let's hear your thoughts on that. And it is, and it is with me too, right? Um, there's a lot of bad stuff going on in our field. And I use the we. I don't use them. I don't say it's those folks over at Uber who were cast, who were, who were called out in the New York Times about yep. pushing drivers to drive and uh, continue to drive when it's unsafe and punishing them for taking bathroom breaks, right? It's us. It's just a question of whether the New York Times has, has found those our particular examples yet. Right. And there are many. And by the way, actually, the New York Times has done a great job in identifying these. But look at look at Brignol's um, Dark Patterns site and the page after page after page of people talking about the dirty tricks that they're seeing out there. And usually it's on the Internet. Right. That they're that they're referring to, because it's particularly in, in digital environments. Um, and this is not a challenge that is unique to behavioral science. The design community has confronted this and, and, and thought about it deeply for a very long time, right? And you find um, analyses of just how we easily lie to ourselves. And so when I think about um, the marketing I've done, some of what I'm really, really proud of, and my team does marketing, it does product development, and it does uh, original research for publication, right? Um, I think about the marketing that we've done and some of it I'm really proud of. And some of them I'm like, was there a clear benefit to the user here? I'm not sure. It takes recognizing that um, the business incentives are almost always better to sell cigarettes to kids than it is to get them to stop, right? Or to help people exercise. It's just a much harder sell than to sell them crappy chips. And it's not that chips and cigarettes don't have their place in society. It's a question of how do we relate to human will? And the choices that people make and an understanding that are we taking advantage of a short-term temptation, knowing that we're probably hurting somebody in the long run. And again, the design community has thought about this for a long time, and we have a lot to learn. 
but I also think we have something to add, which I really haven't seen in the field, right? Now, of course, marketing has faced this, product design has faced this, everybody has faced the ethical challenges of doing business, right? This is not unique to behavioral science. But I think what we can add is the behavioral science of ethics. And this is, this is a literature that I know isn't as familiar to many people in behavioral science, but it's a well-developed and really quite thoughtful look at how our context and how our decision-making environment affects our own ethical behavior. Yeah, you know, Cass Sunstein stands out as a sort of a hero in this yes. area, but are there others that come to mind? Are there other things that we could point our readers to for yes. the ethical application of behavioral science? Yeah, so it's, again, it's, it's actually something different. It's not quite the ethical application of behavioral science. It's rather, what tools do we need in order to be more ethical? And first of that is applying behavioral science to ourselves, mm. right? And so, Dan Ariely has a book called The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. Yep. As far as I can tell, it is his least popular but most important book. It's the one that's so different than all the rest. Now, he has and, and others from his lab and um, uh, from uh, – uh, from Rotterdam have done work in this space where you you test the conditions under which people are willing to lie and the conditions under which people are willing to steal. And we understand, not everything, of course, but we understand in which cases we can do this. And it all centers around this ability to lie to ourselves, the ability to feel good about who we are and what we're doing, like our proud and wonderful application of behavioral science. And at the same time, just, you know, get the benefits of fudging things a bit. And he talks about it in his book as the fudge factor. Mm -hmm. the, the ease with which we can explain away our errors, right? And so, if anyone on this call, and I'm certainly not including myself, if anyone on this, on this podcast is smart or creative, then you're particularly at risk. Because it is, it is our ability to tell stories about how, well, I'm doing this design change because, yeah, okay, this one may not be a great thing, but it's going to help this product, and this product is going to help the company, and it's going to help our users overall, even if this, okay, I probably shouldn't be promoting this feature because this thing's crappy, right? That is a narrative of self-deception. Not only do we now have an understanding of how we deceive ourselves and the conditions under which it's easier to deceive ourselves, Right? We also have a set of tools to help change that. Um, that's clear, 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 bright lines that show what is an unethical practice, what it's not. And that's the place of guidelines. That's a place of ethical checklists. I think that's awesome. Right? We see uh, there's, a, there's a nice piece in The Behavioral Scientist, for example, that talks about that. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I list uh, our checklist um, in, uh, in the book as well. Um, second, uh, feedback. So it's not enough to have a checklist. How, how often do you go back and, and how do you see whether in fact you're straying so that the ship doesn't go too far a course, right? Independent review. You need people who don't like you or at least don't know you to help assess whether you're crossing the line. Your friends will also deceive in the same way, right? <laughs> you don't want your friends on the ethical review board. You want your enemies, Right? Um, you look for things. Um, uh, the more that the more that you can, the more that it looks like you're helping other people, the easier it is to do unethical things. Huh. Yeah. So, and and you see this. Sadly, you see this in the history of politics as well, where this is for the greater good. I'm just going to kill these people. Mm. Right. 
And you see those crazy lines. So how can we remove that? And again, it's about applying behavioral science to ourselves. That's what we bring to the table. Sadly, our human frailties and our ability to do unethical things, we've got nothing to add here. We're just the same as anybody else, right? The business environment, and for that matter, the nonprofit environment, I used to work in nonprofits, um, and the government environment, that can lead us astray. That is nothing new to behavioral science. But the ethics of behavioral science and applying it to ourselves, I think we've got something unique there that we can that we can help with. I would like to change the conversation to focus on music for just a little bit. And okay. I want to start by something kind of personal. What's on your playlist, Steve? <laughs> um, well, uh, Spanish pop music right now. So Shakira, um, uh, Daddy Yankee. So some really good reggaeton. Um, because uh, one, I think it's just fun. And two, I'm using it to help me get back into Spanish. I, I studied a long time ago and I'm trying to relearn. Um, and the other is, um, I mean, I've got lot, lots of things I switch between, but right now, um, Christian contemporary. Huh. So I, uh, I myself am a Quaker, which is not a particularly, not known for its uh, religious fervor, but I just really love, I just really love the music. <laughs> Any artists in particular that, that stand out? Um, quite a lot. Um, I actually just I just have it in the background. I just hear there. That, I can that, probably sing some of the songs for you, though that would be <laughs> embarrassing. Um, I don't know particular. Yeah, I don't know if I can say particular names. All right. So so how is the uh, Spanish pop music uh, working for your your Spanish immersion in uh, re- remembering and being able to to you know hone up on your Spanish at this point. Well, I have to admit, some of the language that I'm learning and practicing would be a lot more useful if I were single. Let's just say that. (laughs) Single and really an asshole. Uh, (laughs) Which is always a perfect combination. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean, given that I'm I'm, um, happily married, um, uh, I, I... it's still just fun music. So you just use that use that uh, with your wife, right? You just yeah. it's like <laughs> that, that would be an interesting experience. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that we're always interested in is the impact that music has on your work and play life, and yeah. we're wondering if you listen to music while you're working, whatever whatever work means to you, and are there are there specific things that you will listen to or won't listen to when you're working? Yeah, um, I, I know this. Oddly, in the behavioral science community in particular, I, I know that this is not a popular topic, um, but when I need uplifting, I really listen to Christian music, right? Yeah. It Great. speaks to me, and I feel that, um, yeah, some of it's cheesy, but it's, uh, but it's about love, and it's about um, uplifting things. And especially in these times, it's good to see that some people are still focused on caring for each other, and being kind and spending time with family, I'm like that's that's really cool, right? Yeah. And then um, when I'm really rocking on, so I do I do a lot of statistical programming, right, as part of my analyses. When I'm really rocking on that, then it's time for some reggaeton. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I also I also do a whole lot of country, um, particularly old country, not the stuff that's really rock now. Um, but uh, and that's and that's just when I want to sit back and just I'm relaxing and I'm not I'm not concentrating on thing too much because how, how old are we talking? We're we talking like Johnny Cash, Merle Haggard. Oh uh, yeah, oh, oh yeah. yeah, no outlaw okay. uh, cowboys. You bet. Okay, outlaw uh, uh, country. Okay. So so do you you do you listen to music when you're writing? 
So I know you do, you know, obviously writing the book and various different yeah. things. Is music going on in the background? I can only write when there's classical music. Or I have um, Anwar Boim is, uh, I, I'm not pronouncing his last name correctly. So some, um, some Arabic, uh, like, Arabic classical style, I really yeah. love, or classical Western music. Um, I can't have words when I'm when I'm writing. Yeah, like we've heard that you're going to get down on the page. I can't have my own. <laughs> we've heard we've heard that with other with other people that we've asked. So that yeah. really interesting, you know. Programming for some reason, no problem, right? I can program with with uh, with with words and, and music all the time, but uh, but I have to have I have to have instrumental music when I'm writing. That's uh, I. Always fascinating. Always fascinating to hear the answers to that question. (laughs) Okay, with that, we are going to say thank you very much and 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 wrap up here. Is but is there anything? Is are there any tips that you'd like to just share with listeners uh, from the book? What what would be the just the most salient things that people should come away with? Yeah. So when I think of tips, it's first, your users aren't you, but they have the same frailties. And so we want to understand their context. We understand the environment they're in and then how we can help overcome those, right? Second, we really do have a blueprint on how to do this stuff, right? And it's not rocket science, but it does require testing. That's the part that people push back on so much. And I, in my view, that's just not negotiable, mm-hmm. right? And third, um, if you think that ethical problems are somebody else's, then I think, well, you and me and all of us need to look a little deeper. Steve, thank you. This has been a, both fun and enlightening, and I I have pages of notes here, so that's always a really good sign. Uh, and so, thank you very much. Well, thanks so much for having me, you guys. Yeah. You guys do a great podcast. It's just a long series of wonderful speakers. I'm sorry to bring down the average, but I'm honored to be here. You did not no, bring down no, the average. No. And you, how can so yeah. how, how can people uh, get to your book or get to you if if they wanted to do sure. that? So you can do both in one place. Ooh, so, uh, reduce that friction. There you go. There you go. Love it. So behavioraltechnology.co. And yes, both the British and the American spelling of behavioral will get you to the same place. Um, so behavioral technology, I have uh, – um, oh, one thing actually we didn't talk about here, which is very important. I have a free workbook that goes through all of the exercises, what you actually do. So this blueprint I mentioned, I've written it out with blanks to fill in. It says, okay, this is what you do, step one, step two, step three, including the ethical checklist, including the behavioral map the intervention list, all of that stuff. That is free and available on behavioraltechnology.co. Um, if, uh, if folks want to have me as a speaker, um, I do some limited consulting as well. Um, that's also all available on the site. Um, and the book itself, uh, Amazon and O'Reilly. So uh, the Kindle book uh, will be out by the time of this, uh, this podcast is aired, um, uh, end, of Mar- end, of, uh, end of May. And the uh, paper book is, looks like it's going to come out end of second week of June. Fantastic. So, Perfect. On Amazon. And there are links to both on behavioraltechnology.co. All right. Well, once again, Steve, thank you very much. And we, we appreciate, appreciate it. it. Yeah. Thank you so much, guys.
Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Steve, have a free-flowing discussion, and whatever else comes into our context-sensitive brains. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Let's, oh. Get, let's get context-sensitive right here. Oh, all right. So it's not like we're in contacts. What does context-sensitive mean? Come on. That means that you're sensitive to the context, right? And the context is what? <laughs> what is the context? Let's Every- get meta. Let's have context around the context. Let's get Every- meta here. Everything is the context. That's the great thing. Like we, you know, Everything. Everything. I mean, just, you know, uh, you, you and I are, are both fans of Robert Sapolsky, right? They, yeah. There's the things that are influencing us in the moment, right? You know, just milliseconds uh, before before these words come out of my mouth, something in my environment or the color of your shirt or something is influencing me. And then and there's all kinds of stuff that's been influencing us and weighing in our brain for the, you know, just marinating for the last few hours or days. And man, who we talk to and what we just read on the headlines. And that's context, man. That's- <laughs> This is context, man. Context. Oh, I love it. I love it. All right. So let's take the context of our conversation with Steve Wendell and let's, let's try to put some, some context around that. So what did, what, what do you think? What was some of the the interesting things from your perspective of this conversation? I wanted to start with uh, talking about uh, applying behavioral science in HR. I found that really interesting in part because you and I have done a lot of work with, with uh, human resource executives and yep. research teams over the year. And I thought Steve did a great job of breaking it down into three really concise areas. And the first one was uh, of focusing on employee engagement, right? And employee behavior. Um, Which is a, a big piece, right? And that's the piece that we do a lot of work in. And it's, it's really, I think, key aspect of how behavior science can be used in human resources. And there's a lot of room to grow as much as there are companies who are, I think there are a lot of companies that are doing a pretty good job of instituting some kind of basic recognition system. You know, there's still just a long way to go to, in terms of really ingraining those recognition systems into the culture. Um, and, um, and I just think that it's, they're doing a good job of checking the box, but maybe not a good job of really, really focusing on what it is that makes for an engaged culture. Um, so, so there's, there's more things that, that a lot of companies can do. Well, and I think a lot of recent research has come out that really points to this, right? Some of the, the conversations we had with Brett Schock and some others, Dan Ariely's talked about, you know, this idea that, you know, employees want control, employees desire recognition. We want both of those things. And, and how do you apply those and apply those in a contextual manner, uh, that is appropriate for your company and for your organization. That's where HR really can use some insights from behavioral science because, again, being such a contextually laden field where the same intervention that worked in company A doesn't necessarily work in company B because of some nuances of context and that's where a behavioral scientist uh, or a behavioral science perspective can come in to really help uh, HR, you know, executives and leaders understand that aspect of it so that they're not just trying to throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. Or even within the company that your customer facing employees might get messaging and might have engagement strategies that are going to be different from people who are not customer facing employees, for instance. Yeah. 
so, you know, context matters, you know, the context of, of their work. Um, the second thing that Steve talked about that I thought was really interesting in this HR conversation was diversity inclusion. Mm-hmm. He brought up Iris Bonet's book about uh, what works. And it reminded me of our conversation when, uh, about hiring when we talked to Nurit Nobel. Um, oh, yeah working with that organization, sort of uh, young tech startup. And it's a bunch of young guys who are basically looking for more Star Wars geeks to join their Star Wars geek team. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was part of the, the application, wasn't it? It was like, or some of the interview questions were, what's your favorite Star Wars movie? Uh, so again, and, and those are, yeah, exactly. And those are those aspects that uh, when, when Nerd went in, and, and deciphered this and looked at this and made the recommendations about how to change because y- you are unwittingly making uh, decisions that are not enhancing your diversity and your inclusion. It's not necessarily intentional, it is, it, but it's, it's unknown because we just aren't aware of that. And again, behavioral science sheds this lens that we can look through in order to see that. So I like that. Uh, and the third third part of this HR conversation uh, that Steve talked about was organizational change. Uh-huh. It, got me, it got me thinking that, wow, we spend a lot of time on strategy and uh, as business leaders and less time on, on what the culture is. And Peter Drucker said the culture eats strategy for breakfast. So why aren't we, why have uh, business leaders not figured out how important it is to spend more time figuring out the culture than it is just to figure out the corporate strategies. Well, and one of the things I see with companies too is that they 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 pay lip service to culture, right? Culture is always one of the things that they talk about in their big overarching statements that they talk about, but they don't get in to really understand the culture or what is driving the culture. And culture is a really nuanced aspect because you can have an organizational culture, you can have a divisional or department culture, you can have a small team culture, and all of those interact with each other and they play out. And those are, again, pieces where a behavioral science lens helps you not only identify what that culture is, but it helps you identify what are the drivers of that culture and then understanding the gaps between what is the desired culture that you want with the behaviors that that culture then drives or enhances versus the, the, the culture that you have and what are some interventions that you can do in order to move from point A to point B, which is what I think organizations want and need. And to your point, you know, that the, the Drucker piece, culture eats strategy for breakfast. It's just true. Yeah. As much as you would like to believe your strategy is the be-all, end-all of making your company a success, you know, people have to implement it, and they implement it um, from an emotional, cultural-influenced way. Yeah, I like what you said about nuance, because our brains are much more comfortable with the black and the white, the yes, mm. the, right, the, the yes, the no, the the more polarized approach to the world is much easier to, to digest. And here, when you start talking about culture, it's a lot of gray area. And that, that, <laughs> that complication makes it more difficult to deal with. And it's not as appealing. So I, I, 
I kind of get where uh, we, we would shy away from it, but we need to. Uh, Kurt, yeah. what else? Uh, what else caught your attention in uh, well, conversation with Steve? I, I want you to explain to me what epistemic humility means. Uh, it's it's this big damn word. And and just call me, you know, maybe I'm a little naive, maybe I'm a little country bumpkin, but you know, what what is epistemic humility? Because it sounds cool. It sounds is really it? cool. And you pronounced it beautifully. You just- Which is amazing for me, isn't it? <laughs> I am normally the one who flubs those up for our listeners who may be new to this. I I my It's one of your superpowers. But um- <laughs> not uh, so uh, it was a new term to me as, as well, but this idea that we believe at the core of our research, this is primarily for, you know, creators, right? That at the core of our creation, that we're probably wrong. And, and that is, um, that's really interesting because it goes against the endowment effect where we say that if we own something or we create something that we're going to love it more than something that we didn't create. Right. And so to step, to take a 180 degree turn on that and say, I'm, I have to believe that at at least some portion of what I just created or just came up with or just research was wrong. Right. Is really hard uh, to to do. And, and I, and of course, you know, kind of gets, you know, Annie Duke, you know, talks about, you know, uh, a lot of different ways of thinking about your decisions that spin things around. So it's not just, I'm always right, but maybe I'm right. I'm confident 60% of the time in this, in this particular issue. Yeah. Probabilistic aspect of that. It, it is really taking the scientific method and, and saying, look, we are skeptics of this and we need to constantly be looking for those areas where we may be, our thinking may be wrong and our, uh, the opportunity to learn more is there. And so you're skeptical about things. It's the, the data suggests the idea that we are always saying it is not black and white. There is a component of gray in here. And I love it. And I love the, I love the terminology. So that's, I, I kind of <laughs> knew what it meant. I, I was a little joking. I think, I think you knew exactly what it meant. You were just saying. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, all right, your turn. Well, um, uh, we have to talk about the Decide Network. The Decide uh, Network? Network? Is that like NBC or ABC or Fox? What is that? Network. No, it's like, no, no the Decide Framework. Sorry. Oh, IDE. Um, but wouldn't the Decide Network be cool? No. You know, Saturday- no, it, it, how about a BS Network? <laughs> oh, the BS Network. Yeah, we would be good on that. Stars <laughs> <laughs> of that network. <laughs> Oh, so back to decide framework. I I, I totally flubbed that. Uh, determining what the problem is, right? That that's the first thing. And I, I just have to say that's really hard. Uh, <sighs> apply behavioral science in the determination of what the problem is is a big problem to solve. And um, I don't think Steve was trying to, and he wasn't trying to roll over that. But but certainly. I just, I just don't want to underemphasize the importance of, uh, of that. I don't know if you had any thoughts about that, Kurt. No, I agree. I think it's one of those bigger aspects, again, going back up to this HR piece, right, and trying to understand how things get applied into HR, how behavioral science can be applied into HR. When HR is looking at a problem, 
are they looking at it through a behavioral science lens in order to what that problem even is, right? So you're looking at, all right, the business is, is going down. We need to ramp up sales. So we need to motivate our employees more. Well, that may not be, it may not be a motivation problem. Right. It may be a friction problem. It may be uh, a, a, an engagement problem. It may be a systemic, uh, you know, other type of problem in there. And that's where behavioral science can sometimes shed some light on the emotional side, the decision-making side, that behavior. Why is the behavior happening or not happening? And that's really hard. It, it gets into some very difficult pieces. So yes, I would agree. A hot, well, maybe 98% with you. <laughs> Thinking in bets. Uh, so the second part is E, uh, establishing the criteria, which is, you know, uh, what is it that we're going to look at? What is it, how are we going to play this, this out? And the third one I thought was really good, the considering alternatives, the C, because this is, this is that uh, divergent thinking, right? Yeah. Where we start to expand the idea. Uh, and this is where diverse thinking on the teams uh, at, at the very least, cognitively diverse really comes into play. Right? Well, and we talked about that in one of our weekly grooves episodes, right? About diversity and the, the, the idea that actually there's research out there that shows that a more diverse group looking at things is more creative than a homogenous group. Right. And, 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 and that additional creativity yields better results. Exactly. Uh, and then the, um, the I, so DECI is the, um, convergent thinking. This is where we start to narrow the ideas uh, or just idea. And uh, that's, that's an important part of it because you have to develop a plan of action, right? You're going to have to uh, get to D in order to do something about it. And then E, uh, evaluate and monitor. Like we, measurement is so, so important. You're a, I know you're a big geek on measuring. Yeah, I think that's that's really you know, but both D's actually the develop a plan of action and then the determining what the problem is, those are actually big behavioral science pieces because if you develop a plan of action that doesn't take into consideration behavioral science, then you are are losing a lot of the the value of of, of what we can bring. And again, those are not easy things to do. It's not it's not just a plug and play. It is not a there's not a, a guidebook that you go in, oh, here is our, here, here's the list of things that are happening. So here, this must be our problem. And now let's go down and we go through all this and we got the, we have the alternative and we, we've identified it. Now here is the plan of action and we just follow these eight steps and we're going to get there. That's not how this works. Again, we start off at the very beginning of this grooving session talking about and context really plays a huge role in developing that plan of action because the culture that your company has may have a big impact on what works, what doesn't work. The environment that you're playing in right now is a different time, you know, during a pandemic than say, you know, last year and probably is very different than even uh, a month or two down the road from here we have to understand those nuances. We have to understand those variations because that's going to be, I think, really key to this. Yeah. You know? but, but I think, you know, companies, if they just watch the network, 
um, would get a, a lot of really great information from that television network, right? That's what you're talking about? Yeah, the, the BS network or the Decide network? Yeah, well, they're competitors, aren't they? Or, or are they, is one like a, an offshoot? Is it like, you know, Fox, you know, Fox Sport and, and Fox General or what, you know? Uh, what else what else struck you in our conversation with uh with steve <laughs> I, I you know just overall you know we, we we didn't touch on it a lot but i think one of the biggest things for me and we come back to this time and time again is the ethics of behavioral science inside of organizations and i think we need to be very clear on how we as behavioral science practitioners, as researchers, as practitioners, as anybody who is trying to implement programs that are using a behavioral science approach, we need to make sure that we're not being manipulative and that we are very forthcoming in how we're using behavioral science because the alternative could really, in my opinion, lead to some ethical lapses that we don't want to have we don't want to have as a, as a practice, as a, as a field, but also just, we don't want to have, because, you know, I want to believe that people are good and, and that we are forthcoming in this. And I can see this particularly when I parlays, we, we didn't talk about marketing so much here, but marketing, um, you know, you can use this to really drive some um, behaviors that you can get additional sales, but are they ethically done? Same thing in HR. You can think about this as to driving additional motivation, um, people working longer, harder, more that may not be the most ethically clean or right things to be doing. Right. It's more than just a bag of tricks. These aren't, it's not just a stump the chump set of, you know, gimmicks. Uh, behavioral science tools are, can be very powerful. And we've also talked about the ethics of, uh, with Rod Wagner about, mm -hmm. If, if we start to, it's possible that we could look at non-monetary rewards, recognition systems, things that, that improve the environment for a company to the point where people could, uh, employees could remain satisfied with lower pay and mm -hmm. start cutting back on, on pay just in order to, uh, you know, save money, make more profits. And you kind of go, hmm, gotta, we got to really be careful uh, with, these, with these tools and how we use them. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think that's, I think that's a, a big piece there. So, all right, everybody, hang on. While, uh, at, after this, Tim's going to do a, a, a grooming uh, a bonus for us. So listen up for that. But thank you for listening. Hey Groovers, this is Tim with our bonus track for our discussion with Steve Wendell. Steve began our conversation sharing how behavioral science is different than the traditional fields of psychology, economics, sociology, and neuroscience as standalone disciplines. He noted three things that we found particularly interesting. First, behavioral science looks at the specific understanding of the mind shortcuts, or what is referred to as heuristics. Second, behavioral science leverages a set of tools that are experimentally tested in the field to overcome obstacles. It's really more than just a big bag of tricks. Lastly, behavioral science focuses on a structural belief in experimentation. Steve introduced us to the term epistemic humility, and we loved it. We recommend that we start from a place 
that is at the core of our research where we believe that we're probably wrong. And that is something that's very cool to take away from this conversation. Steve is also a master of frameworks and acronyms, and his creation of the Decide Framework to help practitioners apply behavioral science to design efforts is really fine work. Kurt and I are keen on how it can help determine what the problem is, establish the decision criteria, pushes to consider alternatives, and then identifies the best alternatives in order to develop a plan of action before evaluating and monitoring the decision. It's a practical framework and it gives a layperson a meaningful foundation to improve the impact of their behavior change initiatives. Of course, Steve would be quick to remind us that the DECIDE framework, like all of our decisions, is context-specific. Steve addressed context specifically in ethics, product design, and replication. The fact that context is primary pillar of behavior cannot be understated. Now for our groove idea for the week. As you reflect on Steve's comments about epistemic humility, think about your own life at home or at work. How often do you think that everything that comes out of your mouth will be right? Hmm. Try this. The next time you're in a meeting discussing a course of action for your new marketing campaign or sales comp plan or product strategy, apply some epistemic humility. Consider framing the idea, at at least in your own mind, that you're probably wrong. Not that it could be wrong, but that it's probably wrong. Now pay attention to how your mind hears comments from other people. Pay attention to how you process the experience of your own ideas and thoughts. That frame might impact your next comment or recommendation for the better. Well, that's it for this episode. We hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation with Steve and that you're staying safe and that you'll leave us a review right now. Keep on grooving. Mm-hmm.